All right. Um, at the end of the third century, there was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was born in the city of Alexandria. There should be a picture of him up in a minute. Uh, Athanasius grew up in this vital city of Alexandria. It was a, an important Roman city that was filled with schools and libraries that emphasized education. We don't know much about uh, Athanasius' childhood. Uh, we do know that as he grew into a man that he um, became a deacon in the church in that area. And so he served under a guy named Alexander, and Alexander was one of the big dogs of that day in supporting the church and what they were doing. And during that time, there became this um, ideology around, it's called Arianism. Arianism was a belief that it was heretical, it was wrong doctrine, it was wrong orthodoxy to believe that Jesus was equal to God the Father. Arianism believed that there was one God and he was the Father and every, uh, every, anything else within the Trinity was less than created. So the Son was created, the Spirit was created which is different than what the scriptures tell us. And so Athanasius and Alexander spoke up during that time. And they created this council called the Council of Nicaea. And in the Council of Nicaea, there was this time where the church uh, forged this path of clarity around uh, being clear that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so we look back on the life of Athanasius in the fourth century, at the end of the third century. And we see this beautiful legacy that he gave his life to. His intent was not to fight for abstract reasoning. His intent was to honor the person of Jesus, to honor that Jesus was who he said he was, and it mattered for our lives in real time. And it's texts like the one we're in this morning that give reason for why Athanasius' passion and intentionality were so important. We're in a teaching series in the, in the Gospel of John, and we're inviting ourselves, because John does, to believe again, to believe again in the truth and the life and the worth and the dignity of Jesus. John wants us to put our faith upon someone, to put our faith uh, on someone, the person in life of Jesus. Not ambiguous, but to know him and to believe in him. So there's three claims in, the, in John chapter 8, in the latter portion of John 8, that Jesus uh, makes uh, clear to us. And I want to walk through those three with you. The first is that um, Jesus is the light of the world. I am the light of the world. The second is, uh, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And the third little statement, before Abraham was, I am. Those are the three claims that Jesus makes we're going to walk through this morning. The first, I am the light of the world. We see it in John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. It says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus makes this simple declaration as he does, and he says, I am the light of the world. This is one of seven statements, I am statements. We're in this I am section where Jesus is making these uh, important statements. We saw one in John 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Then in John 8, we see, I am the light of the world. In John 10, we'll get to it in a few weeks, it's, I am the gate of the sheep. And he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. And then in John 11, it says, I am the resurrection 
and the life. And then the final two in John 14 and 15, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And so Jesus gives these statements that John wants us to lean into and understand. And one of them is what we get this morning. I am the light of the world, the light of mankind, the light of the earth. See, light is a significant metaphor in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it points back to the fire by night and the cloud by day that God led the Israelites through the wilderness with, this light that he provided in the middle of the night. It points to the famous psalm that says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light. It points to the imagery of light combating with darkness as we wait for kingdom come. This picture of light. It points to the famous Advent proclamation that we read in the month of December in Advent season. In Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, we read this statement that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then it goes on and says... For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's talking about the people who walked in darkness. Because the sun has come, light has shone. I am the light of the world. I found this statement to be a, a great way to communicate the story of Jesus. If you have, if you have children, it's a great way, great way to communicate this picture and imagery of Jesus. On the regular, we, we light candles as we have dinner together to signify that. And that's not without chaos, I want to light the candle. I want to blow it out. Like all of that happens. The subtle kid that's just trying to smile and <laughs> trying to blow it out but not see that they're blowing it out. Like all that happens, right? But we still want to lean into this imagery that Jesus is the light of the world. During Advent season, we will read one night during the week uh, uh, this, uh, the story of the Advent season and, and we'll light candles to signify that. Oftentimes I'll take the, the boys, I have three boys, and I'll take them into a, a, a dark room where you can't see your hands and light a candle or, or light a match where it's just deep darkness. And then when light comes, everything changes. See, it's moments like these that become a reminder that we live in darkness. Light has come and will come. It implies the realities and implications of darkness. It implies chaos and fear and unknown. It implies also hope when light shows up. It implies promise. It implies clarity that what you, you can't see in darkness, you can see in light. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the hope of the world. I am the promise of the world. I am the one who's bringing clarity to this broken, sorrowful, dying world. And whoever believes in me will experience this light. So the first claim that Jesus makes is, I am the light of the world. The second claim that Jesus makes in this section is, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
We'll read in John chapter 8, starting in verse 34. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave for a bondservant to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you'd seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So Jesus gives this cause and effect. The effect is freedom. And the cause is, is this, that everyone who is, uh, sins is slave to sin. That we're slaves, we're enslaved, and, and Jesus is trying to bring clarity to this. He's trying to bring clarity to the fact that we are all mastered by something. Everything, every one of us is mastered by something. The master is not in their day Caesar or political system. The master is self-centeredness and it enslaves us and it cripples us and it becomes chains that we have no key for. It becomes this thing that keeps us tied down and prevents us from freedom. It's a devotion to created things at the expense of the worship of the creator. Enslaved is what we are. This is the corruption of this world. In Jesus' view, even Caesar was a slave. We're all enslaved. I sat on an airplane recently next to a guy named Paul. And we all know the dynamic of sitting next to somebody on an airplane. If you're introverted, you're like, get me out of this seat, right? If you're extroverted, you probably feel similar. And then there's Paul, right? And so Paul, he was just giddy at the idea of just yapping the whole trip, okay? <laughs> and so we did. Uh, and it led to this question, Ernie, what do you do? What do you do, Ernie? And, and guys, this can be a complicated question for me when I'm tired, when I don't want to talk. Uh, most of the time, I'm honest. One time, uh, I wasn't honest. This was in 2021. I am a lifelong Braves fan, and um, I'll just leave it there. And <clears throat> I have been waiting for the Braves to get back to the World Series since 95, and they finally did in 2021, as we know. And I was able to go to a game. And I sat next to a guy who asked me, what do you do? And I told him, I was like, I'm, this is not the moment I want to talk. I, I don't want to evangelize this guy. I came to watch this game. I've been waiting my whole life for this. And so I told him I was a teacher thinking that that would be sufficient because I am a teacher. And so <clears throat> he began to press me and said, what do you teach? And I said, you know, ancient history, and then he said, what specifically? And he kept asking questions. And I began to realize that I was in big, big trouble. And finally, before the last question that would have caused me to say, okay, fine, I'm a pastor, I don't want to talk to you, he stopped asking questions. And so that was that, back to Paul. So he asked me what I did, and I did say I was a pastor. Uh, and I, I, we began to talk, and I, I was like, man, I, I, we, we planted this church because we wanted to see people experience Jesus. We wanted to see people encounter the simplicity and the life of Jesus. And he said, oh, man, I'm, a, I'm an agnostic. And, and after an hour of chatting, we, just, we chatted away, and it's clear from his perspective that he had no future hope. There was no future hope. It was this downward, dark spiral 
that it was just getting darker and darker. I'm like, what about your kids and grandkids? Like, what are you, what are you communicating to them? We were, we were talking back and forth. And, and I recognized that the, one thing that we were in agreement on is that we were enslaved and that we needed something outside of us to rescue us from our reality. See, every time he would mention church or corruption, I would point back to the resurrection of Jesus as the only hope that was going to save us from the brokenness of our world. And, and the point was this, that Jesus came to rescue, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that was the point of our conversation. Here's the reality, nothing, absolutely nothing can rescue us from our peril, that we are enslaved. We are in chains, but those whom Jesus liberates from the tyranny of sin are really free, really free from the power of sin, not the presence of sin. It still exists, but if the Son sets you free, you are free, and Jesus makes that very clear to us, that our rescue is tied to Jesus, that he alone can rescue, that a life of surrender to him as our master brings freedom to the bondage that we feel. And Jesus says, who the Son has set free is truly free. It's a good message for us. So he says, I am the light of the world. He says, whom the Son is set free is free indeed. And then the third thing he says is this little statement that we could bypass, and it's so significant. He says, before Abraham was, I am. This is a tremendous statement, it's, and I want to set the stage for us. There's a debate that happens in the latter portion of, of John 8, and it's a debate around uh, regarding Abraham. Now, Abraham was the OG patriarch. He was the first father of the people of Israel in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. There's these significant covenantal moments that God has with Abraham. Abraham was an older man who had no children, and God makes a promise that he would have a child and that a son, and that son would have children who would create the people of Israel, who would become the, the avenue by which God would bring forth redemption ultimately through his son, Jesus. So we pick up here in John 8, 39 and 40, and then a few more verses. So in 39, it says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And then in verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then finally in verse 47, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is audacity that Jesus has, and yet courage, that to the system of religion in that day, it says you are seeking, you're thinking that you're following Abraham, and you're foolish because you're not. Everything that you're pursuing is the opposite to the ways of your father, Abraham. He says you're not following Abraham, you're following the devil. I mean, just the audacity of the person of Jesus, his statements here. He says, you're not like Abraham. If you were, you'd be doing his works, and yet you're seeking to kill the very one that he trusted upon. He says, you have doctorates in the way of Abraham, and you know so little to nothing about him. You've lost your way, 
and your father is not who you think it is. The text continues in verse 53 and it says, Are you greater, they say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. They say, are you greater than Abraham, like the, the preeminent father of our faith? You say you're greater than him? You're greater than the prophets? And then Jesus says, the father has come to glorify me. It's this powerful moment of tension that's happening. And then Jesus finishes with this finishing move, if you will, supplying utter clarity about who he is. And we read it in the last few verses of this chapter. It says, in verse 56 of John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you were not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out the temple. It says, this statement, it says, your father Abraham rejoiced in my day. He said he longed to see it or perceive it or to view it. He saw it and he was glad or he hailed it. A rabbi in the first century, uh, Akiba, uh, Rabbi Akiba, he argued that God disclosed to Abraham the secrets of the age to come, the age of the Messiah. And what's interesting is that Jesus didn't say your father Abraham rejoiced to see the messianic age or the, the age of the Messiah. But Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham found hope in the day of Jesus the Christ. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is one of the most startling statements out of the mouth of King Jesus. I want to hover over it just for a few minutes and we're done. So I want to consider what, what he said, before Abraham was, I am. Before the prophets sought to draw the hearts of Israel back to God. Before Solomon built his grand temple. Before King David became the king after God's own heart. Before the judges and Saul ruled the people. Before Joshua led the people to Jericho. Before Moses encountered God at the burning bush and led the people out of the tyranny of Egypt. Before Joseph freed his brothers from the famine. Before Abraham was called to, the, to be the father of a great nation. Before Abraham was, Jesus uses this phrase, ego ami, and, and Wesley mentioned it a few weeks ago, but this phrase is a Greek translation to what God said to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, in that moment when Moses is walking at night, and all of a sudden he looks and he sees this, this bush of, filled with flames, I don't know what that looked like, and all of a sudden a voice came out of the bush. And in Exodus 3, 5, and 6, it says, Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then in verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to, to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Before Abraham was, I am. So what does this mean? It's unfathomable in their day to hear a human say what only Yahweh could say. It's shocking if we tease it out, that I am equal to Yahweh. I was the one in the beginning who created. I am the one who sustains all things. C.S. Lewis takes up this idea in mere Christianity, and he says this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, it means, before Abraham was, I am. That if his claims are real, then he deserves our worship. And he deserves our surrender. He is the first and the last He is the ancient of days, the the one who is brilliant in wisdom. He is the one who created in the beginning. He is the one who holds all things together. He will bring forth the fullness of redemption. See, the claim of Jesus is a claim of supremacy. And Paul echoes this in the letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae. We'll read it together in Colossians 1, 16 through 18. It says this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, The church, he is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is what Athanasius was fighting for. He wouldn't let Jesus be devalued. He sought for the church to see Jesus as God and to find our allegiance in him. Jesus is not aloof. He beckons our allegiance He is nothing less than the Lord who is God. And this is the wisdom of God that we would submit our lives to him because he first loved us. A Scottish theologian, Donald uh, McLeod, he summarizes why this is necessary and profound. I'll read this paragraph to you. We need a Jesus 
who can explain the Christ of faith, one big enough to account for Jewish hostility and Roman fear, one big enough to explain why he became the subject of such a book as the Gospel of John, one who made such an impression that people easily believed that he had risen from the dead, such a Colossus that within a few years of his death, those who had known him best were identifying him with Yahweh and laying down their lives rather than refrain from worshiping him. A figure of such universality that his church has had a multi-ethnic, multicultural appeal without precedent in the history of religion. What manner of man was he? Able to overcome the scandal of his crucifixion and exert such an influence on human history that to this day, scholars eagerly discuss his impact, not only on religion, but on art and science and politics and literature. He alone renders Christianity explicably, explicable. See, we struggle to follow Jesus, I believe, because we don't honor him for who he is. And his followers followed him as Lord over Caesar because they believed that he alone was worthy of worship. And again, this is what Athanasius fought for. He fought to give himself, the early church fought to give themselves to believe that Jesus really is the light of the world and there's no competing light. He is the only light of the world. That he alone can set us free. And before Abraham was, I am. Friends, Jesus is Lords, and when we see him as such, greater than we can imagine, completely powerful, reigning over all, it gives us confidence to give our lives to him. It gives us confidence to trust him with the intricacies and the details and the frustrations and the unknowns and the mysteries of why this is happening and this isn't. See, when he is small, we trust him little. And when he's great, we trust him greatly. Before Abraham was, I am. It is he who loved loved us and gave himself for us. This is the story that we're invited into, my friends. This is the story that John is inviting us into, that the one who was the word in the beginning, who became flesh, he is the one bringing about redemption and we can trust him with our lives. And John is just pleading with us as he shares stories about this, the, this person of Jesus, trying to awaken faith within our lives, to trust him, to abandon ourselves to him, to give our allegiance more fully to him, to not settle to trust in nationalism, to, not, to settle to trust in political ideologies, to not settle to trust in financial institutions, but to give our lives to trust in Jesus. That's the invitation we have before Abraham was, I am. And friends, we're invited and it's something gnarly, something profound and beautiful that awakens our hearts from the chains of this life. Friends, we're invited to trust in Jesus and to follow him wherever he leads us and to give sacrificially of our time and our energy and to see his kingdom run towards the gates of hell until kingdom come. Like we're invited into something that is so beautiful, God has written himself into our story. Fully God, fully man. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the light of the world and we're invited to follow him. 
So friends, I, I just I invite us. Life's confusing, life's hard, life doesn't make sense. There's all kinds of things that we can feel, put our hope in all kinds of things. And just a simple response for us. Trust in Jesus. Put our hopes more deeply in his life and his mercy and his care, his affection, his pursuit of you. His pursuit is not little. It is great. He is great and he loves us and he gave himself for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you so loved the world that you gave your son and that's not a weak offering that the one who created, who existed in the beginning with the Father and who created, wrote himself into our story. And Lord, we just respond with worship. We respond with allegiance. We ask you to help us to not trust in the things of this world but to put our hope upon Jesus. And Lord, where the cares of this world and the desires for other things and the realities of our flesh pull us to and fro, Lord, anchor ourselves more deeply upon Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Those that are ministering the elements can come on up. Our prayer team can come on up.